Uh, Father, we do pray as we um, come together this morning, uh, just as we go over doctrine and teaching and what your scripture teaches, Lord, I thank you how in previous weeks it's just been um, a time of rejoicing and hearing what you have done and giving you glory uh, over who you are and what you've done, and I pray that that would continue this morning. Uh, I pray that we would um, continue to know you better um, so that we can um, praise you um, and so that we can love you more deeply. Lord, we pray for our morning or even later in the service, uh, the gathering together, that that would be a sweet time and that our hearts would be drawn towards you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I think uh, where we're at um, is page seven, um, and we're under, under the section of salvation. So we talked about the scriptures, we've talked about God, we've talked about man, uh, we've started talking about salvation last week. So uh, if I recall, we talked about regeneration, uh, the work of the Spirit and regeneration before even we respond in repentance and faith. And then, oh, see, Julie's already got some more printed. Um, and then uh, election, uh, God's unconditional election of people who will uh, be his people and will trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, and then I believe, if I remember correctly, we're starting on justification. Does that sound about right? I think we're in the justification section. So, uh, so let's go ahead and read that. Justification. We believe that justification before God is an act of God by which he declares righteous those who, through faith in Christ, repent of their sins and confess him as sovereign Lord. This righteousness is apart from any virtue or work of man and involves the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. By this means, God is enabled to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, there's a couple things uh, that uh, you should see in that. Um, one is uh, there used to be, and this was a big deal, let's say, in the 80s and the 90s, the, the Lordship Salvation controversy, and uh, still is, I mean, still out there, right, but um, maybe not as prevalent, that um, you don't have to have Jesus as Lord in order to be saved, and that just doesn't match the scriptural testimony. So, uh, we, you can see that language in there that says you're confessing him as sovereign Lord of your life. Uh, we've, and we can see that in Matthew, right, as we've gone through it, uh, that that's what's going on. Uh, and then the other key thing, uh, the language of imputation. Uh, we don't use the word imputation that much in day-to-day -day conversation, but it is essential. That is really, in a large measure, the mechanism by which um, God can count sinners just um, how does he do it? Uh, two ways. It's double imputation, uh, imputing our sins to Christ so that he pays for those sins in our place if we are united with him through faith. And then on the flip side, Christ's righteousness uh, as a human uh, credited to us um, so that we can be seen as righteous. So it's not enough to just, for, to just not see our sins. But um, if you use that, that ledger analogy, that accounting analogy, right, we have an infinite debt. The infinite debt needs to be paid, but that brings you up to zero. But you not, don't need a zero in your bank account. You need infinite righteousness to be able to, uh, a perfect righteousness to be able to draw near to God. And 
that is what Christ has done, because not only are our sins credited to him, his righteousness and his righteous human life is credited to us. Um, so that is what allows God to be just and justifier, Romans 3.26. So uh, questions, anything, questions or comments on justification? Right. Right. And again, that that's why like sound doctrine should it's supposed to do right. Not only okay, are we accurate? Yes, we need to be accurate. But uh, is it drawing our hearts um, closer to the Lord? Right, which is what it should do. Which is why I mean. Uh, one of the uses of doctrinal statements, even historically, um, you, you know, that like even things like the Nicene Creed or things like that got recited in the worship service, uh, not just to merely say, this is the faith that we confess, but it's part of worship, right? It's part of confessing who, who our God is and what, who we believe him to be. Um, so absolutely, that meditation on not just these aren't just facts, but meditation on them. Uh, especially with justification, so, um, Psalm 32, which Paul, who, which Paul quotes um, in Romans, right? He says, um, what does David say? Blessed is the one against whom the Lord does not count sin, right? It is a happy thing. Justification should make us happy and joyful. So, yeah, Tony. And it's interesting where he says there, that's one of the key texts for what is, the, what, what is the resurrection all about, right? The resurrection does a lot of things, but the text that Tony just quoted in Romans 4, it specifically says Christ was raised for our justification, um, meaning what, why is the resurrection important? Well, if Christ's death is for sinners and for their sin, well, if he just stays dead, how do you know that they were actually done away with, paid for, that God is satisfied? And you only know through the resurrection that God is satisfied um, that all sins of his people who believe in him have been paid for. So, yeah, that's a good text. Thanks, Tony. Um, all right, sanctification. Sanctification. Now, we spent a great deal of time talking about sanctification and holiness, so a lot of this is going to be familiar. We believe that every believer is sanctified, set apart unto God by justification— and is therefore declared to be holy 
and is therefore identified as a saint. This sanctification is positional and instantaneous and should not be confused with progressive sanctification. This sanctification has to do with the believer's standing, not his present walk or condition. And really, this is, it happens at the exact same time as justification. It's just looking at it from a different angle, right? And we talked about this, that you've got the realm of the common and the realm of the holy. Every sinner is unclean and in the realm of the common. And so what is God doing positionally? He's not only declaring righteous, but through that is also uh, declaring us holy so that we can approach and draw near to God. Uh, that is our position. That is why all the, all, many of the New Testament letters are addressed to the saints, to the holy ones, to those who have brought out of the realm of the common into the realm of the holy. So there's a positional aspect to that. But then we get into the progressive side. We believe that there is also, by the work of the Holy Spirit, a progressive sanctification by which the practice of the believer is brought closer to the standing the believer positionally enjoys through justification. Through obedience to the Word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to live a life of increasing holiness in conformity to the will of God, becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that, 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? Uh, as we behold the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into the same image, the same glory from from glory, from his glory, into, uh, into glory. Um, so uh, We see more. We believe that progressive sanctification, which comes by the Spirit through faith, is imperfect and incomplete in this life. Although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of Christ, Yet there remains remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. In this respect, we believe that every saved person is involved in a daily conflict, the new creation in Christ doing battle against the flesh, but adequate provision is made for victory through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The struggle nevertheless stays with the believer all through this earthly life and is never completely ended. All claims to the eradication of sin in this life are unscriptural. Eradication of sin is not possible, but the Holy Spirit does provide for victory over sin. So um, what, what you see here is the reality and the tension of uh, we are, there is effort on our part to grow but that effort means nothing unless the Spirit empowers it. Um, and so uh, that's being articulated here. What is also being articulated is that even though there is victory and there is hope, uh, Christ didn't die just to give us a righteous standing. He did do that, but he also died to transform us, and we should be increasingly transformed uh, into the image of Christ but uh, you're not going to reach the end goal until glorification, right? So uh, there are some who would claim, well, yeah, I, can, I, I don't sin anymore. And uh, sorry, it doesn't happen. First John 1 says if one, anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar. Um, and so uh, there's that tension of, yes, there is victory. Praise God. There is victory in our lives. 
Um, and, and anytime you see victory in your life, you can't say, oh, look at what I did. Um, you have to look at, well, yeah, I worked, but actually it was the Spirit at work in me that accomplished those things. And so I praise God for any progress He has given. Um, but you, you ne- you're never done, right? The war is never done uh, until the end. So any uh, questions or comments on sanctification? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that book, yeah, that book, uh, Bookends of the Christian Life, it's um, been hugely impactful in my life. Uh, we took the Aspiring Men and Adorned Women through it. Um, great book, great paradigm, or great way of boiling down the paradigm of the basics of the Christian life of what does it look like to now live by the gospel and all that we do. So if you haven't read that, it's, it's not that long of a book. It's a good little book. Uh, and so that's what, what Steve was just referencing there. So, yes, Jerry. Yes. Yeah. So at the point of death, right, um, there is your there there is no more sin right yeah yes well and and paul in romans 8 he says uh you know the the full consummation of our adoption as children uh it's the deed has been accomplished the paperwork's been signed but the idea is that um he hasn't picked us up yet to take us home and paul looks ahead really to the new heavens and the new earth where there's going to be resurrection, uh, but we enjoy that adoption, and we enjoy, you know, our, he talks about our spirit groaning, and this time along with the rest of creation, but when the consummation of all things, the new heavens, the new earth, earth comes, our sin, sinfulness is gone, um, and uh, we'll be with the Lord forever. Yeah, yeah, so we're growing in Christ until that, that point in time, so... And, and you can't, it's never, as soon as you say, well, I'm just going to wait for that, and I'm not going to put any effort, you've essentially become that man with the one talent who just digs into the ground and buries it, right, and does nothing. God is not pleased with that attitude, and if you have that attitude and you don't war against the flesh, you're, that's not a good sign. Uh, in fact, it's a sign of, um, that you're not a believer if you're not actively engaging in the war, so... Yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, that was uh, the first, I think it's the very first point in Luther's 95 Theses. The, li- the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's an ongoing life. It, the whole Christian life is a life of faith. Um, and even in that passage you're mentioning, Tony, in Romans 4, it talks about Abraham 
growing strong in his faith as he's giving glory to God, right? And so there's, there's a growth in faith even, so. All right, perseverance, perseverance. Um, we believe that all who are justified will win this fight, referring to the fight of faith that was mentioned in the previous paragraph. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. Uh, this perseverance is the promise of the new covenant, obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance, so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God was with me, which was with me. We believe that all the redeemed, once justified, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. This security is an objective reality for those who are truly in Christ, yet this objective reality is worked out as the subjective reality of the believer's perseverance and engagement in the fight of faith. Uh, And I'm going to pause there for just a second. What we're trying to articulate is that there is the reality of uh, what we're trying to articulate is the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, right? Um, the P and tulip. Um, but what we want to be careful of, there's kind of a mantra that gets rehearsed, oh, once saved, always saved. And that's true, right? That is absolutely true from God's perspective, right? So a lot, of, I think we mentioned this last time, a lot of the whole, even the Arminian Calvinist discussion, a lot of it boils down to what perspective you're looking from. So we have the scriptures that tell us God's perspective and tell us things like about unconditional election and uh, eternal security. Um, those things are true, and they are given for the, encur- for the encouragement of God's people, but never in such a way that to diminish um, the fight of faith, the effort of faith. Um, and that's what we're trying to articulate is that tension. That's why I think the, the, the language of perseverance of the saints is better because it articulates, yes, the saints will persevere. Only God knows whose are his, ultimately. However, from our perspective, uh, that perseverance is perseverance. Perseverance articulates that idea of labor, of hard work, of a fight, um, but all the while dependent on the power of, of God. So all God's people that he's chosen for before the foundation of the world will persevere, but what does it look like in real time from our perspective? It looks like um, work, uh, dependence, um, labor, uh, fighting, uh, all of the things that, that um, the Christian life entails. So we believe that it is the privilege of believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's word, which, however, clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion for sinful living and carnality. In other words, you can't, you can't break this tension in such a way that you just say, oh, well, God saved me, I'm good to go, don't need to worry about anything, so I'm just gonna kind of live like the world. Um, again, that, that's, not, that's not what a Christian looks like. Um, a Christian looks like someone who's absolutely 100 dependent on God, but who is also working out, not working for, working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So, 
uh, questions on that. It's a really important doctrine, perseverance. So, and you can think about that, right? Um, that's what we're here to do. One of the things that we're here to do in the church, right, is to help one another persevere. In other words, I'm not just gritting my teeth as a lone wolf. I am dependent on the means of grace that God has given, and one of the primary means of grace is the church, the fellowship of believers, to help me make it to the end. Hebrews uses that language a lot. So, yeah. Questions, comments? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. So that idea is God changes our desires. Now, here's the catch or the trick or the difficulty. Um, sometimes a genuine believer uh, does for a time fall into a pattern and period of sin. Now, in that time period, they will have, they should have no assurance of salvation uh, because they're not living like a believer, and all of the warnings of Scripture and the warnings of God's people come to bear and are trying to shake that person. This is like church discipline, right? You're trying to shake that person by the shoulders and say, wake up, brother, wake up, sister. Uh, you're looking not like a believer. But in those means, God can call, it can be a genuine believer, right? But God is using those means to wake them up and call them back and get them back on course. So what's interesting is that can happen for a time but that's why um, we, we need to be faithful in church discipline. And you remember church discipline, it's, it's a process, right? How does it start? One-on-one, on one. meaning we need to know and trust one another and be involved in each other's lives enough to be able to come and talk to one another and say, hey, brother, uh, I just saw you doing this, or I've seen you doing this, and that's sinful. Uh, you need to repent of that right? Uh, we are called to do that for one another so that uh, we stop at stage one and um, so that we don't enter those prolonged periods of backsliding, if you want to use that term. So, yeah. Okay, anything else on perseverance? Separation. We believe that separation from sin... Now, remember, just all these headings, they're under the heading of salvation, right? So all these are just different aspects of the salvation that Christ has called us to. Separation. We believe that separation from sin is clearly taught, excuse me, clearly called for throughout the Old and New Testaments, and that the Scriptures clearly indicate that in the last days, apostasy and worldliness shall increase. We believe out of deep gratitude for the undeserved grace of God granted to us, and because our glorious God is so worthy of our total consecration, all the saved should live in such a manner as to demonstrate our adoring love to God, and so as not to bring reproach upon our Lord and Savior. We also believe that separation from all religious apostasy and worldly and sinful practices is commanded of us by God. Um, turn the page. Uh, we believe that believers should be separated unto our Lord Jesus Christ and affirm that the Christian life is a life of obedient righteousness that reflects the teaching and commands of Christ and a continual pursuit of holiness. So really this is kind of another articulation of a 
of holiness. It's just our, it's, it's emphasizing we're separating from sin and we're separated unto Christ. Our desire, our goal, our delight, our joy, our treasure is Christ himself. Um, so it's not just that we're trying to have some nice behavior modification. We are seeking to, for greater and greater affections, uh, separated from, like, like um, Carol was saying, right, separated from those desires towards evil and increasing in our desires for Christ. So questions on that? Rachel? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And in the New Testament, right? So it's the same idea. There's separation. Um, and this goes, actually, it goes back to the, the church as well, the community, right? That not only the individual, but the community is to be separated, is to be distinct, is to be definable, is to be visible, because what? We're a community. Every believer is a priest— and is to be holy like the priest, and is to display that, and not only individually, but together, just like in the Old Testament, where you have, uh, because what is, the, what is the local church called in the New Testament? It's called the temple, right? Um, the people together are called the temple um, to, dis- uh, to be separated, to display God's holiness together, so, which leads us right into the church. So, the church. So, now we're under an We've, we've, seen God, we've seen the scriptures, we've seen God, we've seen mankind, we've seen salvation, and so now we're jumping into the church, which there's a lot on the church. We believe that all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into one united spiritual body, the church, the bride of Christ, of which Christ is the head. So, uh, the, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 talks about um, a believer. Every believer is baptized by this Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit uh, into the universal church. Again, this is what we're going to talk about in a lot of this. There is a perspectives thing. From God's perspective, he has regenerated someone. They've been baptized um, into the universal church spiritually. And yet, what's interesting is, I would argue that every time that baptism is used in the New Testament, you are never supposed to separate the spiritual baptism from water baptism. Now, you can conceptually say that, yes, uh, obviously, regeneration, spiritual baptism happens chronologically and logically prior to a water baptism. And yet, when someone read these texts, or the early church read the New Testament texts, they wouldn't have separated them. They would have just said, well, yeah, God's doing something spiritually, and that's supposed to work its way out in, a visible, in the visible act of baptism. Um, so, yes, you can make a conceptual difference in your mind, but never in the New Testament are you designed to separate the two. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Um, there's, some good, there's some good authors that write on that subject. So whenever, sometimes when we read New Testament texts, it's like sometimes we'll ask the question, well, is that talking about spirit baptism or is it talking about water baptism? 
and I would argue you're never supposed to ask that question um, because in the mind of the New Testament and the mind of the early church, they're one and the same. Um, one is symbolizing the other. Maybe that's a better way to say it. One is symbolizing the other. So, and both, uh, one is the act of God and the other is a command that believers are supposed to fulfill upon being regenerated. So, yeah. Uh, okay. One sentence, uh, we believe the formation of the church, the body of Christ, began on the day of Pentecost. So, um, this is also, uh, this is where we would differ from other fellow believers. Um, Some would say the church is Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, and there is no doubt uh, that Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are saved in the exact same, in the same way by faith, God's promises, Um, and uh, we would also say that Old Testament believers will be part of the display of the church in the end time, right, of that whole assembly. But what we're trying to articulate here is that um, Jesus says in um, Matthew 16, uh, I will build my church, and church just means assembly, so there is a link to the Old Testament assembly of Israel, but what is going on in Pentecost is new and it's distinct. Why is it distinct? Because it's the new covenant community versus the old covenant community. Now, Jews are, if a Jew believes in Jesus, um, they become part of the church. They become part of the new covenant community. But that's, that's what we're trying to articulate. The church is a new thing because it's a new covenant community, not the old covenant community. And so that's why we say that, that statement. Any questions on that? Because sometimes people talk about that. Sometimes you'll hear people kind of say the church in the Old Testament. And it's like, well, no, that's not exactly what we're talking about. So. Mm-hmm. The way I tell people is, uh, uh, is Israel in the end time is going to be part of the church, and Israel has a distinct role as a people within that church. They still have a distinct role in promises that are given to them, but they will be a part of the church. And the church is where God is working now to the end, because Ephesians, uh, at the end of chapter 3, talks about... Um, Glory to God in, well, let's go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 3 at the very end, kind of in that doxology section. Yeah, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Meaning the church is the deal from here on out. Um, Not to the exclusion of the promises to Israel, but uh, the church now will encompass Israel 
um, because the church is the new covenant community, and the new covenant is first and foremost for the Jews. They still have a role to play, but God's glory is now being displayed in the church um, from now until the end. So the church is the deal. So any questions or comments on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a great um, verse because so through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now who's it made known to? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, which is something we don't think about. Is what we do as individual Christians, but even more so, what we do as the church, as a visible church, um, is uh, not just about us, and it's not just about our na- you know the unbelievers around us. It's about testifying to angels and authorities in the heavenly places. So the mundane, the mundane things that we do in gathering, gathering, being separate from the world, um, you know, a lot of what we do just feels mundane. It just does. But what we have to have is this perspective of, uh, no, God is glorified in his church and the proclamation of his glory and of his wisdom, even in what we do, which seems mundane, uh, is, is actually glorifying him in heavenly places. Which, if you tie that in with 1 Corinthians uh, 1 and 2, right, uh, it says God gets glorified uh, through the folly <laughs> of what we preach, right? That there's, there's a seeming folly in what we do as believers and as Christians, and yet that's the very thing that God uses to glorify himself, uh, even in the heavenly places. So, yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, we believe that the church is a unique spiritual organism designed by Christ, made up of all born-again believers in this present age. Um, the church is distinct from Israel, a mystery not revealed at the end of this age. So we just talked about that. We believe that the establishment and continuity of local churches is clearly taught and divined in the New Testament scriptures. So you see that in Acts. You see that, well, basically in every New Testament epistle that's written to a local church, right? Um, and you see that in the, uh, the introductory statement. Um, it talks about that. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. We believe that the establishment and continuity of the local churches is clearly taught and defined in the New Testament scriptures and that the members of the one spiritual body are directed to gather themselves together in local assemblies. And um, he, he, so there's one church, isn't there? There's one church. I mean, that, the New Testament's clear on that. Um, what is the church? The church is an assembly of people. To correlate that with the kingdom that we've been seeing in Matthew, the church is not the kingdom. It is the kingdom's citizens, right? It's not the whole of the kingdom, but it is the substantial part in terms of the kingdom's citizens. So if you think about the universal church, it's like all of the kingdom citizens. Well, how is that, how is that one church manifested? It's manifested in local churches, which are a grouping of kingdom citizens, and I think this is where the analogy of an embassy is very helpful, right? The church is not the kingdom. 
This church is not the kingdom, but it is an embassy and representative of the kingdom, just like we have a U.S. embassy in, you know, um, do we still have one in France? I thought France uh, cut us off. Anyway, um, anyway, in another country, uh, we have an embassy in another country. Uh, that embassy is sovereign territory um, in that country, but it is not the whole of that other country. And the local church is like that. It's representing God's kingdom locally, um, even though there's this one big thing and this one big kingdom that we're talking about at the end of time. I think that's the most helpful analogy that I've heard and kind of uh, to, to, to make sense of how does the local church relate to the universal church. So, yeah, Eden. Uh-huh. Right. So that's a good question, um, right? And it, it's a pertinent one that you hear, like, um, why, why so many denominations? Why all these different churches even in our own city? So um, from that kind of, first, that brings you back to what constitutes a legitimate church, right? So people ultimately don't get to decide what a legitimate church is. God does. So you would want to start with those criteria. And basically, um, it is uh, people who are covenanted together for um, right preaching, preaching of the gospel, preaching of Christ, um, and right practice of the ordinances. So, I mean, that was kind of the Reformation answer of, like, here's what the marks of a local church look like. So you start with God's criteria on what is a true local church, but even so, there can be true local churches in the same area, right? So um, I um, have another good example um, off the top of my head, but, but like there are other gospel-preaching churches in this area. They might not, uh, they might not believe in all the same doctrines, and there's a certain point at which we're going to divide because some of those doctrines we believe are very important. So, like the levels of doctrine, we talked about that, right? Priority number one, the gospel. You don't have the gospel, you're not a true church. But that second level of, say, doctrine are things that historically the church has divided over, and it makes it really hard to be the member of the same local church. So what's weird is, like, I could affirm that someone at another church is a believer without being able to be a member at the same church with them because there are substantial doctrines that we're misaligned on. Doesn't mean that they're not necessarily a true local church. It just means that they there's substantial doctrines that we um, disagree on, and we so we just can't partner together. Um, and so if you start from God's perspective and kind of those criteria of like, this is why um, there are so many denominations. There's also historical reasons, right? So up to a certain point, there was just one church, right? Everyone agreed that there's, that's what the word Catholic means. It doesn't mean, uh, we, we think, we hear Catholic and we think RC, Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic just means universal, um, and that idea of that's how the Christians thought of them. There's one church, and there's all these manifestations. Well, you can think about that from God's perspective, right? God sees one church, 
and he, he knows all of his true local churches, we don't always have the benefit of that perspective. All we can go by is the criteria that he, he gives us. So, unfortunately, it is a... It is a something like there's been more division <laughs> in the church than um, should should have happened. I guess you would say it that way. And yet, some of those divisions were necessary. Like you think of the the Reformation, right? Because of the truths of the Scripture, uh, here's what God tells us a, a true church should be and how it should act. So we gotta we gotta hold to those. And if that means dividing from something that's still calling itself a church but actually isn't then that's, that's how you have to approach that. So, Does that help? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and again, some of that is like, it's a false argument because, you, you know, it's, it's really an excuse ultimately because it's like, well, what does God say? What is his standard? What is he declared to be true, right? And so churches and individuals are held accountable to that standard. So... Um, you can't excuse yourself because of the abuse or the misunderstanding, uh, the fallacies of human, human people in not obeying that standing, right? Just because other people have not obeyed what God has said, that doesn't, it's not, that's not an excuse for you to disobey what God has said. You're still called to that. So the call is, yeah, it's unfortunate that there's all these kind of different divisions and denominations, but what's the call? The call is, all right, for where we're at, and with who we are, what is our call? Well, let's ma- try to match what the scriptures say uh, on on those sorts of things. So, And even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about there's got to be factions among you so that those who are genuine may be recognized. So even there, there's an acknowledgement um, that, well, and you can even see this in the letters of John too, like there's, there's already people who are like splitting away, teaching false doctrine, and they're still going under the name of Christian, but Paul, uh, but Paul or John, uh, depending on which letter you're reading, is saying, yeah, but those guys actually aren't. Um, and so that's the kind of conversation you have to have, but you have to draw it back to, it's not just because of what I'm saying, but we have to look at the scriptures and what God says his church is to be, what his people are to believe. And that's the standard we're shooting for, right? Um, that's the core of what we're aiming for. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what's going on there? So why don't people come to church? Well, again, there's kind of, there's a, there's a lot of historical dynamics that are happening through that. Um, some of it, um, so our culture 
to use Carl Truman's word from his books, is a culture of expressive individualism, right? Where the individual is king. I mean, you think about a lot of the Western world and how that's developed over the last 200 years. Um, it's not just the last few decades, the last couple hundred years. We value the individual. Even Luther, in a sense, Luther kind of started some of this, right, with his his, you know, he's, he's confronting the, 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 the Catholic Church, right? He says, um, you know, my conscience holds me captive to the scriptures, right? And here you had an individual who was standing against the church, and rightly so, because the church was apostate, right? It was, run, it was teaching false doctrine. So you have like this um, weird end of the pendulum where you can think of you know, uh, community as all, or you can think of the individual as all. Where we're at right now is like the individual as all. So we conceive of Christianity as an individual thing, right? Well, it's my choice. This is what my conscience tells me. This is my individual reading of scripture, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Jesus just didn't, I mean, where you want to take that person is just like, well, I don't, I don't see that going to church is that important. You have to take him to the New Testament, and you have to take him to the letters of Jesus. Like, no, Jesus loves his church. He calls it his bride. He loves, I mean, Revelation 2 through, chapters 2 through 3, Jesus is, inter, he's talking to individual local churches, and he cares about them. And so you kind of have to confront that individual in a loving but firm way that, friend, you, you are saying that you follow Christ, but Christ loves his local church. Why aren't you loving the local church? That's not good. That's not a good sign. Um, and so you kind of have to confront them with that. But what that's doing is it's also grading against our culture, cultural love of choice and cultural love of expressive individualism. So um, that's the hard thing, right? Um, and certainly, it doesn't help that um, there are, back to the multiple churches thing, it doesn't help that there are churches where you can point and say, well, look at, there's abuse in the church, there's this, there's that, and we're not being as holy as we should. So it, in all of this, like the, the, where we're at in our culture, it makes it, it, makes it just all that much harder. And so, um, but for that individual that you're talking to, I think you have to take him and say, friend, if you claim to follow Christ, then Christ loved the local church, and you ought to as well. And he commands people to be part of it, to use their gifts as part of it. You, you, can't, um, you, you, can't, uh, you can't skip out, right? Um, and people still try to twist it around and defend it. And Now, there are, are there places in the world where someone can't find a good local church, and they're off on their own as a believer? Yes, but that's the exception, that's the rule, and it's not a healthy position to be in. Um, so, um, the, yeah. So, Matt. See, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend anyone to ever go to a Catholic church. Because the because here's the thing right like there's this, um, the doctrine is if you believe what the Catholic Church teaches you cannot be saved if you subscribe to all that the official now I'm talking official I'm not talking about individuals who could be in that movement who are still saved I'm not saying that I'm talking about if you subscribe to official Catholic Church teaching then you are in opposition to the gospel. 
So I would never put a believer in that scenario. They're so far gone. Versus like a church that uh, they're still preaching a true gospel. It's only a true church if it's preaching a true gospel. So you could have a church that's preaching a true gospel, and maybe there's a lot wonky with it, not healthy about it, but it's still preaching a true gospel. Then yes, uh, yeah, okay, um, fellowship with those believers. It's still not ideal. And what's the aim? The aim is, okay, is it um, is um, let's let's conform conform to what um, the the gospel first and foremost, and let's try to conform uh, to healthy teaching. So, um, sorry, I cut you off. Was there more to what you wanted to say? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, we're out of time for today, so this is good. We're going to continue to walk walk through this. Uh, this is, and I've said it before, but kind of like what I just said with the, uh, where our culture is at, especially in America, but, you know, even in the Western world generally, um, we are really weak at our ecclesiology. We are really weak in our understanding of the church and how it works and how it functions, and so some of what we're talking about is just so good and healthy, and I'm glad you guys are bringing up these questions because we need to get better at this um, um, to, um, so that we as we were saying, uh, as a local church, glorify God and put on display not only to our watching world, but also to the spiritual realms, like this is how we glorify God. Um, and part of that is how we work corporately at it. So, yeah. And we'll keep going through um, the church next week. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, it is amazing that, 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 that reality of um, your local church and how you're working through it, how you love it, and even how you display your glory to the watching world, but also to the heavenly realms. And Lord, we pray that we would do that. We pray that we would be faithful uh, in doctrine, in teaching, in soundness, in focus on the gospel, and focus on you, Christ. We pray that even as we uh, come together here shortly as the gathering of your people, the assembly of your people, um, that the temple assembling, uh, Lord, that we would uh, focus on you, that we would give praise and honor and glory to you, um, and that uh, you would be lifted high. Um, we pray for even people that would come today um, that are not be uh, believers, and they would see believers coming together and would see the difference, and that we're part of a different kingdom, uh, and that that would draw them by your grace. And um, we thank you for the mercy in rescuing us, uh, Lord. There is nothing in us that would deserve that, and yet it is just your sheer grace and mercy. We thank you, and we pray that we would be a joyful people even as we come together. And pray that we would, you would help us to love one another, to serve one another, uh, for your great name. In Christ's name, amen.